Welcome to the preaching podcast of Life Point Church. We're so glad you've joined us here. If you're ever in the Baton Rouge area, please stop by. We'd love to meet you. For more information on our church or Pastor Donovan, please visit our website at golifepoint.com. Continuing our Revelation Revealed series, we are in chapter 3. This is Revelation Revealed, part 8, Revelation 3, part 2. And so I'll say a prayer, and then we'll jump right into it. Father, thank you so much for your word, for your goodness. I pray, Lord, that you would just speak to our hearts tonight in Jesus' name and show us the truth in here. Amen. Everybody say amen. Pull up the house lights a little bit. I can see you better. Elizabeth, it's good to see you. We're glad you're back. I know Brennan's very glad you're back. And we have missed you and glad that you were glad that you were back. Trey's coming back in a couple of weeks. We'll be happy to have him back. Yes, we love Trey. And uh, getting some of our students back, sending one off, unfortunately. Sad. All right, well, we've looked at Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, and last time we looked at Sardis. If you'll remember, Sardis was the busy, productive, rock star church, a shining example of what a successful church is supposed to look like. Sardis was the one church all the other churches looked at, in awe and amazement. They all wanted to be like Sardis. And Sardis had its own brand. You know, they hosted the Sardis Conference. It's called Sarcon, I'm sure. They had a dedicated aisle at Lifeway. You know you've made it, right? They had a dedicated night on TBN or Daystar, It was Sardis night. They had their own YouTube channel, books, seminars, coaches, networks, resources, merch, a PR firm. But Jesus saw below the busyness and the buzz, and Jesus saw, well, he saw a big fat goose egg, a zero, zilch, nada. Sardis had worked so hard to accomplish so much that meant absolutely nothing. Much ado about nothing. There's a lot to learn from Sardis. I don't want to be so busy with church stuff that I'm not doing the stuff that the Lord of the church wants me to do. It's a warning, really. This, you know, one of the things this does for us is serves as a warning to us. It's not just about being busy, it's about being busy about the right stuff. So we looked at that. Now, historically, Sardis is the church of the Reformation, generally speaking. We saw this in the prophetic view of this. Luther, Calvin. A lot of hullabaloo, a lot of busyness, wars, masses of volumes written. 
reforming the church, influencing countless millions to this day. But in the end, when the dust had settled, it was still creedal Christianity. What the Roman church called just wayward daughters of the mother church that were certain to one day return. And ironically, it was those very councils that produced those creeds. You put two of them together, the Nicene and the uh, Constantinople councils, and you see where they declared that the church is or should be one, some of you could probably quote this with me, holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. But the irony is not missed in the sense that really, rather than the words of the apostles being the foundation and Jesus Christ himself the chief cornerstone, rather than that, those words were lost and it became the actual words of the creeds and councils that superseded the words of the apostles. I know that's hard for some to swallow, but that's my view on that. I believe it, it really fits into the prophetic model. And God is warning us, don't be so busy about the wrong stuff with the wrong point of view. Stay centered on Jesus and the words of the apostles. Are you with me? So next, Jesus turned his attention to the church at Philadelphia. The city of Philadelphia was founded by Attalus II. His older brother, Eumenes II, was the king of Pergamum. Apparently their parents didn't come up with original names because you've got Attalus II and Eumenes II. Well, Eumenes was the king of Pergamum. Attalus was a military man who led the armies of Pergamum for his brother and king. It was said that Attalus loved his older brother. And he loved him so much that he was given a nickname, Philadelphus. Philadelphus, or brother loving. And there are coins with their images side by side on those coins, not only commemorating their achievements, but the fact that they were best of friends. But not only did Attalus love his brother, it seems that Attalus loved his brother's wife, Stratonice. At least he grew to love her because when his older brother died an early death from some unknown sickness, old brother loving Attalus married his brother's life straightway. So there you go. There's a little detail. The Greek word philio is one of the Greek words for love, and it refers to the love between friends. We tend to think of the word Philadelphia, the name Philadelphia, as meaning the city of brotherly love. And that works, but in our vernacular, We're limited in our view of love. And so in the Greek, there's more words for love, one of those being philio or phileo. And in our vernacular, it's really more like the city of friends or the friendly city where people are liked. Sounds like Facebook or Instagram, right? That city where people are liked. But the idea is this. you, 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 The the philio, it means like. Like audiophile means you 
you love music, but really it's, it means you like music. The opposite would be like audiophobe, like you're afraid of, of sound, you're afraid of music. Phobadelphia would be the city of brotherly fear, but I digress, right? I'm just making a point here. Philadelphia was supposed to be a friendly city because Rome was using Philadelphia as an outreach city, reaching out like a missionary city. It was specifically designed. It's the youngest of the seven cities in Revelation, in those churches of Asia Minor, and it was specifically designed to help spread the Greco-Roman culture, the language, customs, norms, and values of Rome and their Hellenized ways out into Phrygia and the outer edges of the Roman Empire. And here's why it was perfectly suited to do so. Number one, Philadelphia was strategically situated on the postal route, a Roman road, which, according to William Barclay, connected two continents, strategically placed. And secondly, Philadelphia was the epitome of Greco-Roman culture. Barclay, again, said to walk through its temple-scattered streets was to be reminded of Athens, the center of worship of the Olympian gods. And in the middle of all of this was a church of which Jesus had nothing bad to say. He only had good things to say about this church. The only other church like that was, can you remember? Anybody remember what the only other one was that was only good? It it was, no, but close. Smyrna. It was an S one, yeah, Smyrna. You made me second guess myself. Smyrna. Sardis was bad. But Smyrna was the persecuted church, and they were good. So let's dive in. Verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. Let's stop right there. So here we have this angel. Again, this could literally be an angel assigned to this church, one of the holy angels of God. This could be the pastor. This could be the messenger who would deliver this message to the body of Christ at Philadelphia. Jesus then self-identifies as he who is true and holy. And we've seen that this is significant in his self-identification in all of these. And he identifies in a way that we first saw in the first chapter. It says here, Jesus identifies as he who is holy and true. This reveals that Jesus is holy, meaning Totally dedicated, totally set apart, separated for the good of his covenant partners. In other words, Jesus is focused on the church at Philadelphia. And he's telling them that. I've got my eye on you. I've set myself apart for your good, for your benefit. I'm on your side. I am for your you. I am focused on my promises, my words, the words of the covenant that I have sworn to you. And he was saying, I am holy. And that means, of course, uh, traditionally we think it means morally perfect. But that's who God is in his nature overall. Holy is always in reference to covenant relationship. So he's saying, I 
am holy. Of course he's morally perfect. But he has also chosen to separate himself for the good of those who are called by his name. And that's what he's reminding them. Listen, I'm on your side. I am for you. I I am your elder brother. I'm your kinsman redeemer. I've set myself apart for you. I am holy. And I love that about Jesus. In Luke 1.35, he is referred to as holy at his birth. In Acts 2.27, he is referred to as holy at his death. And then he is also referred to as holy in his present priestly office in Hebrews 7.25. Now, he is also the almighty God wrapped in flesh. And the angels cried in Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy. And that's designating absolute, total, and complete holiness. And if he was that way for Philadelphia, brothers and sisters, he's that way for LifePoint. He's that way for you and me. Sometimes we feel like he's a million miles away. But what's your feelings got to do with it anyway? Nothing. What do you believe? He said, lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the world, to the end of the age. We've not come to the end of the age. He's still with us. So it's not what do you feel, it's what do you know, what do you believe. I believe what he said. I choose to believe what he said. My feelings are fickle, they come and go, but my Jesus is faithful and he never leaves. And so I'm going to put my trust in what he said and not what I feel. As Pentecostals, I grew up around Pentecost, in Pentecost, we are a Pentecostal church by experience. We believe in the manifestation of the Spirit, the moving of the Spirit, speaking in tongues, those types of things. We're not ashamed of that. But one of the things that we stumble over is we get wrapped up sometimes in misunderstanding emotion and and goosebumps and mistaking that to be uh, the only thing that works. But I've seen God heal people when I didn't feel nothing. As a matter of fact, God's healed me when I didn't feel nothing. Do you hear what I'm saying? Are you with me? It's not a matter of feel. And I love the feeling. Don't get me wrong. I love to be in the presence, in his presence. There's fullness of joy. But I've lived this long enough to know that I don't always feel him. Sometimes I preach, and I don't feel nothing. And God just shows up and blows up. And I stand back in amazement. Wow. Mm. And I know it wasn't me. I'm like, God, you're so good. I've sung and felt nothing, but God moved powerfully, touched people. Maybe they felt something. Maybe they didn't. We just got in a frame of mind where Well, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. And when your faith comes alive, you grab a hold of stuff. You don't have to feel it. You just know it. You believe it. You declare it. You stand on it. Because God's faithful. Jesus is faithful. Does that make sense? That's good whether you think so or not. That's really good. He's faithful. Now, he says that he's true. He's holy. Then he says he's True. 
This is less true versus false and more true versus fake. He is real. He is real. He is the true, the real, and living God. His trustworthiness, Missler says, is the bedrock of his kingship. And his kingship, it all rises or falls on can you trust him? And the idea that Jesus is telling the church at Philadelphia Philadelphia is this. You can trust me. Now that's really good news. You know, there are a billion Muslims in the world who worship Allah. And Allah is, well, capricious at best. You just never know. You just never know if he's on you know, your side, or maybe he's on somebody else's side. If he's in a good mood or in a bad mood. If, if he got out of the bed wrong or if he got out of the bed right. And you can't trust him. And so they never know. They have no assurance. There's no faith there that he's going to provide or come through. You have no expectation. But Jesus is saying, I am, I am true. You can trust me. I'm the real thing. I will come through on your behalf. We have a God who delights in making and keeping promises. He'll make you promises, and then he will keep those promises, and he will never fail at keeping those promises. Now, he goes on to say that he has the key of David. He who opens and no man shuts, and he who shuts and no man Opens. What's all that about? The key of David. Guzik says Jesus is the self-proclaimed, I love this, keeper of keys and keeper of doors. The one who has the power to include and exclude, to admit and to refuse admittance. Now this comes from Isaiah 22. And boy, it's quiet in here, just Bible teaching away, plowing. That's what the old timers said. We just plowing up the old fallow ground. Bunch of fallow ground out here, and I got my plow and my mules, and we just plowing along here in the book of Revelation. But Isaiah 22 is a reference here to the key of David. And this is where Eliakim is replacing, uh, I, I think it's, uh, I forgot his name, Shebnag or something like that. Uh, he's replacing this guy as the steward of the king's house. And so this Elohim is going to have all access. He's the true and faithful steward of all the treasures of the king. Tradition says that the steward of the king's house would have these big old keys that he would throw over his shoulder and they would have access to all the goodies in the king's house. And, and so this is a picture. This is messianic as we'll see. I'm going to read this. Isaiah 22 starting with verse 20. This is messianic. Jesus is the true steward. Listen to this. Then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Elikim, the son of Hilkiah. 
I will clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your responsibility into his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder. So he shall open and no one shall shut. He shall shut and no one shall open. I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place. And he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. They will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the posterity, all vessels of small quantity, from the cups to all the pitchers. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, the peg that is fastened in the secure place will be removed and be cut down and fall. And the burden that was on it will be cut off for the Lord has spoken. So this is a picture of Jesus who would be that nail in a sure place. That's an unusual word to describe the Messiah, a nail, a nail that is in a sure place and on him will hang all the promises, all the blessings. And then in true suffering servant form, Isaiah says under the inspiration of the spirit that that nail will be cut down and removed. That's a picture of the crucifixion of Christ, he'll be cut off for the Lord has spoken it. And Jesus, way over here, centuries later in Revelation, is saying to this church at Philadelphia, I am that nail. I am the steward of all the treasures, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. All the promises in him are yes and amen. All the promises are wrapped up in Christ, and he is looking at them and saying, I have the key of David in my hands. I open and no man can shut, and I shut and no man can open. I am the keeper of the keys and the keeper of the doors. I admit and I reject admittance. And he says to them, now that he's identified himself, I know your works, verse 8. See, I have set before you an open door. I've opened this door. I have set before you an open door. I did it. He takes responsibility. I set before you an open door. And no one can shut it. You have a little strength. You've kept my word. You've not denied my name. Let's take a look at this. Open doors are opportunities. And more often than not in Scripture, they have to do with evangelism. We see this in 1 Corinthians 16, 9, 2 Corinthians 2, 12, Colossians 4, 3. Jesus told them he had opened the door of evangelistic opportunity. And they must go through that door in faith. I mentioned it earlier. Even in a secular world, Philadelphia is an evangelistic city on a mission to spread the Greek culture far and wide. Now, Jesus opens the door for the Christians of Philadelphia to spread the culture of his kingdom. I love that. Salt and light. Spread the word. Go into all the world. Preach the gospel. I feel like sometimes we miss that. We overlook that. We don't see it. I love the fact that Jesus told them, you've got to see. He said it in verse 8. I know your works. See. I have set before you an open door. They had to see this open door. God sets opportunities in front of us, but often 
we don't see it. We have open doors in front of us individually and collectively as a church, but we have to see those doors. We have to see those opportunities. Chris was sending me Facebook messages yesterday. Chris Cole. Chris asked me for my son's email address. And or did he send he sent a Facebook message to Caleb asking for his email, send him this big letter. This is uh, Miss Janet's uh, daughter and son-in-law. And he sent this big old email to Caleb and said, you don't know me, but you affected me. Then he sent me a really nice uh, message on Facebook. Thank you for doing what you do. What, what happened that particular Sunday a couple of months ago was there was a door of opportunity that God had opened and no man could shut it. And there was an opportunity for an individual, a man, to be a affected by the word of God in a way he had not been affected before because somebody walked through that opportunity. Now that's in a church service. I believe we have those doors open every church service. I don't think we see it every service though. I would say that tonight there's a door of opportunity for ministry, but sometimes we don't see it. We're not looking for it. Jesus was challenging the church of Philadelphia. Don't miss your opportunity. Spurgeon was asked by somebody one time, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, uh, how do I know uh, that, I, you know, how do I get an opportunity to evangelize? I, I, I want to know how to win others to Jesus. Spurgeon asked him, what do you do? He said, I, I'm an engine driver on a train. Spurgeon said, is the man who shovels the coal on your train a Christian? He said, I don't know. Spurgeon said, go back. Find out and start with him. That's your opportunity. And I know we live in a Christian world and, and, and you know, we're in the Bible Belt. And so, so many, it's, it's less and less than it used to be, but still there's so many people, they go to church, they believe in Jesus, they're wonderful people. And, and I get that. But man, there are opportunities, there are people that are struggling with their faith, questioning their faith. And if, if we're just sensitive and pray that God would open our eyes. There are opportunities all around us. God opens those doors. Man doesn't open those doors. God opens those doors. When it's a God thing, no man can take the credit for it or the glory for it. I don't want to belabor the point, but the way we started this church, Life Point Church, we started prematurely. I met a man I wasn't supposed to meet in a place I wasn't supposed to be in. His name was Gabe. We were in Texas. We got back together up here. God started moving, and the rest is history. We didn't plan that. We didn't schedule that. God opened a door. I had sense enough to finally wake up and realize, because I resisted it, and I finally realized God is doing this. God is opening this door, and we moved out in faith, and God changed many, many lives. What doors has God opened for you and for me and for LifePoint Church that we need to walk in and take advantage of? I'll tell you this. If God does open a door for us and we don't see it, we are responsible for missing that opportunity. We've got to be awake and aware. And so here's the deal. You know, 
you got to walk that fine line. You don't want to be that, that freaky person, you know, like that's always putting you, throwing your gospel bombs out and, and, and talking about Jesus constantly. You can develop relationship. You can be wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove. But, you know, I'm just saying, we got to be aware of the doors that God opens. We're responsible for those, y'all. And, and I think sometimes we don't see them because we're focused on what's going on right now in my world. We just see this. Oh, my God, i got to do this. Lord, help me. i got to do this, and i got to do this. And there's this big, wide open door over here. And there's a man, the Macedonian man, say, come over and help me. Come over and help me. And we're looking down here. I've got so much to do. I'm so distracted. Weapons of mass distraction. You know, we've got all these distractions. And there's a door. So I want to challenge you this week. Open your eyes. What doors has God opened up for you to walk through in evangelism? On the job, who you're working with, begin to talk to them, love on them. Be kind, be nice. You'll have your moment. Look for those open doors, a door that opens and no one can shut. Oh, it's awful quiet. Adam Clark points out, David could shut or open the kingdom of Israel to whom he pleased. He was not bound to leave the kingdom even to his eldest son. He could choose whom he pleased to succeed him. The kingdom of the gospel and the kingdom of heaven are at the disposal of Christ. Henry Morris says, Neither wealth or influence, neither promotional schemes, nor the eloquence of its pulpit, nor the harmonies of its musicians can give it an effective ministry. The Lord alone opens doors. The Lord alone gives the increase. The steward of this house is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And I would say the steward of this house is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the one who has the key of David. He opens, he shuts. Now, what's up with this little strength? You have a little strength. There's nothing bad to say about them. At the same time here, he doesn't say you have great strength. He says you have a little strength. In studying this, I'm reminded of what Paul said, when I'm weak, then am I strong. So it's not so much that Their strength is small, per se. It's referred to by Jesus as strength, so it's real strength. I think the idea is this. We can be too strong or too big, too sure of ourselves in the sense that God can't use us. The church at Philadelphia Philadelphia had that poor in spirit, that poverty of spirit, where they knew that they needed to rely on the strength of, of Jesus. You've got a little strength. It's not a matter of great strength nor great ability. Samson had great strength, great ability, but he was not dependent on God's strength like he should have been. Then he says, they've kept my word, have not denied my name. I think the idea behind this is not so much taking the name of the Lord in vain as much as it is 
they have not been poor ambassadors of my name. It's about ambassadorship. But one of my favorite stories along this line is the story of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was this fearless young general taking over the world. He was fierce. He was amazing. And there's this story historically about this young man that was in the fight with Alexander the Great. And in the heat of the battle, this young man deserted. Alexander the Great wanted to deal with deserters personally. So when the battle was all done, the dust had settled, that young man was captured and brought before Alexander the Great by his commanding officer. Brought this guy, Alexander, he said, this man deserted in the heat of the battle. And I know that you want to deal with these young men personally. Alexander looked at the fella and he said, son, what is your name? Trembling, he looked at Alexander the Great and said, my name is Alexander. And Alexander the Great looked at him and said, son, either change your ways or change your name. And the idea is this. We are his ambassadors. We bear his name. Jesus walked through open doors, didn't he? The doors the Father opened for him. Did he walk through them or did he not? He walked through them. He was faithful to walk through all of those doors. And now we bear his name. And doors open and no man can shut them. The idea is this. Are we worthy to bear that name? Are we walking in a way? I know we're not worthy except by the blood. But are we living up to that name as ambassadors? We're to occupy until he comes. We're an occupying force. We're to own our space, man. We're to influence. Part of the way that you recognize doors and you're effective in those open doors is that you dominate the space. In other words, wherever you are, every leader owns a meter. You own that meter. You own that space. In the name of Jesus, I take authority over what's going on here in this cubicle next to me. I refuse to have, devil, you get involved in my life, mess up my world, and mess up this person's world. I take authority over that in Jesus' name. You see what I'm saying? I dominate this meter on the job, in the courtroom, if I'm working in the courtroom, if I'm working in Walmart, wherever I'm working, wherever I am, I dominate. I am an ambassador for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I guess that would also apply to the fact that I'm not going to blow it either. We just had, oh, God, help me. This could be on the podcast. i got to be careful. And I'm closing. But, like, we just had. And it's amazing the things that can be said. How quickly we can throw each other, slap under the bus, and then back up, roll over, back up, roll over several times. I'm like, are you kidding me? I mean, come on now. I mean, just amazing. So I, you know, I live in the real world too. I know what it's like when there's conflict and issues going on. But, you know, we're supposed to, blessed are the peacemakers. Like, I'm an ambassador for the Lord Jesus I'm not going to jump on that gravy train. I'm not going to hop on that bus and and, and jump on that negativity. I'm going to walk as a man of God. I'm going to try to 
find the peace and try to love on this one and love on that one. Because I believe God's opening doors, even in my neighborhood, He's opening doors in your neighborhood to have a voice, to have influence, to have impact. At the same time, I'm not running for my any HOA office. I'm just telling you that. But <laughs> stand with me right now. Uh, <laughs> oh, Lord, maybe they won't hear that. Um, The Church of Philadelphia is commended for keeping the word. I love that. Here's some features of Philadelphia. Evangelistic opportunities set before them. Reliance on God. You have a little strength. I mean, you're leaning on me. Faithfulness to Jesus. You've kept my word. You've not denied my name. He says, I'll make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. In other words, those who kicked you out of the synagogue to the Jewish believers here, they'll be welcomed in my house. My house will be a house of prayer for all nations. And they will find a place to worship their true Messiah who has the key of David amongst you. I think this is fascinating. Unbelievers, it's told, to the church at Corinth, will come in amongst you and fall down and worship God, saying God is amongst you of, of a truth. As much as I said we have to go not by how we feel, but what we believe, I think that when we walk in faith, the presence of God shows up in very powerful ways. We just can't be limited when that presence is not manifested at the time. We just need to be faithful. That's what Philadelphia was doing. They just walk in faithfulness. You don't always feel goosebumps. You just walk faithfully and you have your moments of influence and power in the name of Jesus. And he says, because you've kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. This is speaking of God keeping them from tribulation. It's the perseverance of the saints spared from wrath. He said this for that church. He said, I am coming quickly. Now, this has prophetic implication. And we'll pick it up there. But let me just close with this. This is a prophetic picture of the revival church. The church that experiences a great awakening. I believe historically this is painting a picture of the church during the eras of George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, John and Charles Wesley, evangelistic, a return to the word, going back to the covenant, getting a burden for the lost. This is a revived church, and it's something that we all need to relate to as well. Everybody wants to be this church. We've, we struggle with all the other elements of course, they paint a prophetic picture, but they paint a picture of us all, even to this day, to some extent. But if I could be in any of these churches, I would want to be that church at Smyrna. I'd want to be that church at Philadelphia. I bear up under pressure. I'm faithful to the name and to the word. Not flashy, just faithful. There's something to be said about faithfulness. Amen?
Is that exciting? Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were blessed by the preaching of God's Word. For more information on our church or Pastor Donovan, or if you plan to attend one of our services, please visit our website at golifepoint.com.